Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. edition of the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast, the short punt edition. In Nashville, Tennessee, this is the professor, Matt Perkins, joined, as always, by my good friend up in the second city, our intrepid blogger from Big Ten Accounting, Josh Cook. How's it going? It's going well, Josh. Uh, It's time for another short punt. It is. And uh, for those of you who don't know what in the world these are, um, during the offseason, Matt and I like to tell just ridiculous stories about college football and we do it as a tribute to uh, one of our favorite podcasts. In fact, it is my favorite podcast, the dollop. Uh, We blatantly rip them off. One of us tells a story to the other. Uh, Matt, you don't know what I'm telling you tonight. Uh, The only thing that lets us really sleep at night is the dollop has never done a college football one. And we've never done a short punt that was outside of college football. So I I feel like we're not stepping on their toes uh, very much. Um, And if anything, imitation is flattery, right? It is the sincerest form of it, sir. All right. Well, until we get sued, we'll just keep doing these. Sounds good to me. But uh, September 19th, 1909, Robert Henry Stidler is born in Smithville, Texas. You heard of Smithville? I have not. Okay. Well, it is a sleepy town about an hour outside of Austin. How do towns get called sleepy? Like, what, 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 is, what makes a town sleepy? Just because, like, no one does anything? Uh, I never understood how, how a town can be sleepy. I feel like that is uh, a little bit too much personification for... I think it is small population, maybe just one main street. Maybe all the businesses close at, like, 10 p.m., Okay, I think that's when you call that you know like a, like a one horse town or something. Is it with this? Would you could it, all, could it be a synonym for a one horse town? Sure, okay. I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. Um, but Smithville isn't just a commuter town of Austin, Matt. It okay. uh, it set a record in 2006 for the world's largest gingerbread man. Oh wow! I mean, who doesn't love gingerbread men? Uh, I was over 20 feet tall. It's a large gingerbread man. It was over 1,300 pounds. It's a fat gingerbread man. It required 750 pounds of flour. Okay. 49 gallons of molasses. Okay. And 72 dozen eggs. 72 <laughs> dozen eggs. So that yes. makes you at, what, uh, 864 eggs? Yes. <laughs> okay. That is a lot of eggs. Unfortunately for the good people of Smithville, uh, the record has since been broken by a Norwegian Ikea. Oh, God, Ikea just has to ruin everything, don't they? <laughs> uh, anyway. As, as I sit here at an Ikea desk, yeah. next to my Ikea bookshelves, on my Ikea chair, on top, next to the uh, Ikea um, 
Wildcat Men. So, yeah, thanks. Well, they're fun to assemble, and they're cheap, and they look good. So, whatever. I've got IKEA furniture, no shit. Uh, anyway, anyway, although he was born Robert, Robert, the focus of this podcast would go through life by his middle name, Harry. So that's what we'll be calling him. Uh, Harry was the bouncy son of Charles Ellsworth Stettler and Cecil uh, Personana Priest Stettler. Cecile? Cecile, yes, a female's name. That was his mom's name. Okay, I was gonna say if he if he had two fathers back at that at the turn of the century, that really would have been a story. Uh, her middle name was uh, Persananana, I believe. Persananana. P e r s i n a n n a. Persiniana. I don't know. Um, but I used bouncy as the adjective because this man could jump. Uh, he went to Texas A&M from 1920 to 1931, and he lettered three times on track and field, and he broke the Southwest Conference record in the pole vault while there. Pole vault, interesting. Yeah. Uh, as a senior in 1930, he tried out for the Aggie football team, and despite a small 137-pound track body, he made the team as the backup quarterback. Okay. His head coach, Matty Bell, may have seen something in young Harry. After all, Bell would win several league titles and a natty in 1935 while at SMU and is in the Hall of Fame. So clearly, Harry had some football skills. Obviously, a Hall of Fame coach wouldn't have added him to the team if he brought nothing. Clearly. Yeah. So Harry graduated in 1931 and soon entered the coaching ranks. His first stop was back homeville, home in Smithville, where he coached until 1933 as a high school coach. Uh, next was another high school. This one was in Belleville, Texas. Uh, this is another dusty town just far away enough from a big city to not really be a logistical suburb. But in case you're looking for a side trip, it's a little over an hour from Houston. All right. And Harry was coaching in Belleville from the 1934 season through the 1937 season. Uh, next up, Harry went to larger towns and even bigger success. Uh, from 1938 to 1941, he was in Corpus Christi. And then from 1942 to 1945, he was in Waco. All told, in 15 seasons of Texas high school ball, he was outstanding. His 1938 Corpus Christi team went 13-0-1. Outscored folks 466 to 85. They took home the state championship in front of a packed Cotton Bowl. In 1945, his Waco club tied in the state title game. In his time at Waco and Corpus, so those seasons at those two schools, he compiled a nasty 55-1-2 record and even had a stint as the Texas High School Coaches Association president. So he's uh, quite active there in the high school coaching ranks. I have a question, though, about Texas high school football at this point. When yeah. does Friday night light, lights begin? When does the first game, like, played under light? When's the first Texas high school game played under the light? Um, I didn't come across that in my research, okay. but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it was r- around this time. After all, okay. um, go on. high school football was extremely popular, and Texas weather can be hot. So why wouldn't you play it at night? 
Um, such successes caught the attention of college programs, and for the 1946 season, Harry was off to rights. Uh, position coach Buster Brannon took a gig over at Florida, and Rice headman Jess Neely turned to the high school stud Harry. That's a name I, I'm familiar with, Jess Neely. Yeah, well, how about a quick detour for both of them? Uh, so Buster Brannon was also a great basketball mind, and actually he would end up making more of an impact as a basketball coach than he ever did for football. Between his time at Rice and TCU, he won six league titles. He made the dance five times. He went 0-5 in the NCAA tournament, but this is ridiculous. Of the opponents he lost to, four of them made the title game, and three of them won the whole freaking day. Well, you know, came, came down the wrong side of the coin five times in a row. Yeah. Um, as for Coach Neely, who you've heard of him, he is in the Hall of Fame, uh, thanks in large part to four conference titles at Rice, three Cotton Bowl victories, and an Orange Bowl victory. And believe it or not, Matt, the first of these league titles came with, you guessed it, Harry as his backfield coach. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Um, so in that season, the Owls went 9-2-0. and up. Uh, They opened with a heartbreaking 7-6 loss to LSU before ripping off five straight wins, including an upset of number three Texas, 18-13. Rice would climb up to number five in the polls before another narrow loss, this time 7-0 at Arkansas, to knock them out of national championship contention. I miss the swag. Yeah. Swag was a a great conference. Oh, one of the best. Um, Great stories, great personalities. Um, After that loss at Arkansas, which was played in Little Rock, something they did quite often back then. So after the loss in Little Rock, Bryce would win their final three games of the season, wrap up the Southwestern Conference title, and then they headed to Miami to take on top 10 Tennessee in the Orange Bowl. Oh, right. And so what, what season are we in again now? This is the 1947 season. 47. This okay. is the, uh, well, 1946-47 season. So yeah. uh, New Year's, the 1947 Bowl featured a halftime show of releasing over 10,000 balloons. There was an appearance by Dwight Eisenhower. And the game was a little sloppy. There was nine turnovers. I'm, I'm going to bet that Eisenhower was better received at the Orange Bowl than uh, 45 was at the national title game this year. <laughs> uh, just Dwight. Just Dwight. Dwight wasn't even the president. I know. He was just, <laughs> he was just like returning general badass. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Like, oh, thanks. I, you know, I, uh, <laughs> it's the whole war thing over there. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, so Rice used a first quarter touchdown. Hold on, Josh. Can I ask you a? Of course. Can I ask you a, a, a political question? Yes. Eisenhower, best twentieth century Republican. Um, I don't know. That's tough. I think that uh, the first Bush also did some really good things. Okay. Um, but yeah, Eisenhower is an interesting, interesting figure. Okay. Interesting. Just wanted to go there. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, so Rice used a first quarter touchdown as well as a safety to win the game, eight nothing. Um, I mentioned there were nine turnovers, right? Nine turnovers. Yes. Uh, So So was there a hurricane? uh, It was a little sloppy. Yeah, I could not find the weather on the game. But in a play befitting of a game this sloppy, the safety came when they watched snap when Tennessee was attempting a quick kick. 
Oh, gosh. <laughs> That's just a, a confluence of bad things. Because at this point, the short punt formation, after which we named the show, has gone out of, out of vogue. That is, that's pretty much gone by this time. Yeah. So, and no one's quick kicking unless they're really desperate. No, like you're facing like a third and 30. You're probably doing a quick kick up this time. Yeah. Uh, so Rice would end that year ranked 10th in the country. The next year was also a solid one. They went 6-3-1 and one and ended back in the polls, this time at 18. Uh, so the two-year run on Neely's staff was like the big break Harry needed. And Texas A&M called their former backup quarterback back to College Station to help out with their struggling coach, Homer Norton. Have you heard of Homer Norton? I'm not familiar with uh, the affairs of Mr. Norton. That's fine. Well, Norton had a run of big wins in 1939 to 1941. Over those three seasons, he went 29-3, and 16-2 in conference, won the SWAC all three times, and picked up the Natty in 1939. Gotcha. But, but in the five years since that run, he's had two losing seasons overall, Mm-hmm. And just one season above 500 in league play. Got it. So with Harry's killer backfield at Rice as a blueprint for success, Tamu was hoping Harry could jumpstart things for Norton. Gotcha. Unfortunately, the 1947 Aggies would go just three and one and one four and one in conference. That's not a good start to the head coaching career. No, and uh, and Homer Norton resigned, ending his Hall of Fame career. Um, A&M wouldn't look far for their next head coach. They hired the 37-year-old Harry to be their next head coach. Mm-hmm. And it made sense. He'd help guide Rice to new heights as a key assistant. He knew high school football in Texas like almost no one else. Uh, he played for Matty Bell, who was over at SMU demolishing the SWAC at the time. So he was a perfect fit. Uh, despite everything looking good on paper, A&M had been down for a while, and fans weren't really holding back. Before his debut season in 1948 even started, the Eagle, that's a paper down there, wrote, quote, the execs were clamoring for a winner. If Stidler doesn't produce his first year, there's nothing to prevent a severance of his contract immediately. Wow, we thought and we thought the you know the hot seat yeah. started early nowadays. Yeah, yeah. Um, doesn't even get to opening day. They're already calling, already calling for his job. Yeah, uh, still, still. Thankfully, most people around the program knew that the talent was really thin and gave him a little bit of a leash. So A and M opened. Wait, so Josh, wait, wait. Were you saying that Texas A and M's fans and supporters were being unreasonable about their talent? Um, that they were that they should be uh, world beaters when they're in fact not. Yes, okay. that is one hundred percent correct. Okay, just making sure that nothing has changed yeah. in the past seventy-five years. No, nothing's changed. Okay, great. Nothing's changed at all. I'm glad we're all on the same page. Exactly. So A and M opened nineteen forty-eight with nine straight losses. Uh, the the Aggies battled hard though. They lost by the exact same 20 to 14 score against Texas Tech at Baylor and to number eight SMU, who needed Doak Walker heroics to save the game. They also lost 14 13 to LSU in that losing streak. Uh, the finale was a dandy, however. They were visiting seven and three Texas, 
Uh, A&M managed to do something they had not done in almost a decade, not lose to the Longhorns. Oh, I thought they were going to say go into Texas Stadium and not smell Bebo. <laughs> uh, for the downtrodden Aggies, uh, the 14-14 tie to end 1948 at 0-9-1 felt great. A major weight had been lifted from the pro. Harry's second season, 1949, was also projected to be a long one. The predictions were spot on as AM would go just 1 8 and 1. The improvement was visible, though. Harry's knowledge of running attacks was evident as Bob Smith cashed Texas Tech for 214 yards on 31 carries and Harry's first win as a head coach. But hold on. He's 117 and 2 in his first two years. Uh huh. Um, yeah. Actually, Hugh Jackson called. He would actually love that record. And he'd be <laughs> <in shock>. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so later in the season, uh, Smith had another big day. He racked up 175 yards as the Aggies stunned ninth-ranked SMU in a 27-27 tie. And as you mentioned, he's sitting at 117 and two. Yep, for two seasons. And A&M faced a really tough choice. They could dump Harry, but he was showing improvement on the field and was killing it as a recruiter. Or they could keep him and hope those victories finally start coming. And A&M would take the risk and bring Harry back for the 1950 season. Got it. So he is armed with three upperclassmen tailbacks. Uh, they got Billy Tidwell, Yale Larry. Wait, his first name is Yale. Yeah. Yep. Yale Larry. He uh, Yale. That sounds like that sounds like a kid you went to high school. Yeah, you know Yale Yale Larry. <laughs> went to Yale. <laughs> Not to be confused with uh, Walla Walla Community College, Community College Larry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, Yale Larry. I mean. Uh, and the, uh, the third upperclassman was Glenn Littman. Um, those three were joined by a returning starting quarterback in uh, Bartimol. Did they have some sort of, like, fun nickname for the, for the three of them? I don't know. I didn't find one. But they also, had, they also had that solid fullback, Bob Smith, the dude who came up big in 1949. Wait, Bob Smith. Uh, yeah. Was he just a player created in uh, – <laughs> Uh, NCAA football uh, 50? Yeah. Well, he was in the witness protection agency. So. Okay. <laughs> um, but with these guys, A&M was hoping for a breakout season. And Harry's squad didn't disappoint. They opened the year 2-0, and including a blowout over rival Texas Tech. In their third game of the season, the Aggies had top 10 Oklahoma on the ropes in Norman – before the Sooners managed to have a comeback to seal the win. And believe it or not, Oklahoma would go on to become the eventual consensus national champions. That year. All right. Um, two more blowout wins push the A&M record to four and one. And of those wins was one over SWAC foe TCU. This would be the first league win for A&M since 1947. That's uh, that's what we call per, like Purdue perform, Purdue like performance. Yeah. Daryl Hazel <laughs> loves those numbers. Yeah. Um, a was nationally ranked. They were in contention for a league title, but a flat effort in Waco against Baylor put the season on the brink at 4-2. and two. These Aggies rallied, though. 
They would destroy Arkansas 42-13. And then one of the upsets A&M had been dying for. The Aggies stunned SMU 25-20 thanks to Bob Smith's record setting 297 rushing yards as the Aggies spoiled seventh-ranked Pony Express that year. Oh. Yeah, so well, I just wanted to go back to um, – uh, sorry. I just – I, I need <laughs> – um, sorry about that. I, I just needed to go back to uh, Daryl Hazel for a second. <laughs> Because you know you've got it bad when you get fired from your job. And if you're a head coach, you don't even get a coordinator position. You have to go back to being a position coach. That's how bad you, you screwed up as a head coach. You got knocked back down twice. He's now a wide receivers coach. He's a wide receiver coach in the NFL. Yeah, which is even like less important because position coaches at the NFL level don't do a whole lot. Yeah, so he's getting paid to not do a whole lot. Which is probably the best use of the combination of money and talent available there. Sorry, go mm-hmm. on. Um, so A&M, A&M was 6-2. and two. The breakout season was finally here, boys. All right. Sadly, A&M would go full-blown A&M and oh. lose, lose to Rice. Wait, would they... Uh, would they uh, uh, would, th- would this be Clemsoning themselves before they b- before Clemsoning became a thing? Yeah, they would. Uh, they would lose to Rice and rival Texas to finish six and four. Ooh, too bad. Uh, despite the poor finish, the season wasn't done yet. A brand new bowl was going to be played in something unheard of back then, December, and they wanted some bigger name schools to help it out. Wait, where is it going to be played? Well, I'm getting there. As a result, the first, last, and only Presidential Cup Bowl was held December 9th in College Park, Maryland. Oh, yeah. Other me intrigued. So Texas A&M would be playing their first bowl game since 1944, and they would face Wally Butts' Georgia Bulldogs. The Dogs were no stranger to the postseason, having played in the Orange Bowl just two seasons ago. In fact... The Hall of Famer Butts won the whole enchilada just a few years previously in 1942. All right, so we've got it. That's a that's a pretty good sized match. Then Georgia, Texas A and M, in the mm-hmm. for the first playing of this bowl. Is this a what date? What was the date that was played on? December 9th, nineteen fifty. December 9th, nineteen fifty. Yeah. That's pretty early in the bowl season. I know. Yeah, it was like I said, it was unheard of to have a December bowl. Like that, so that is yeah. I mean, even still, December 9th would be something else. Yeah, I mean, even today, December 9th is a pretty early bowl game. Yeah, that's exa- exactly. So, all right, interesting. Oh, so, Very interesting. Uh, it gets more interesting. We're we're far from scratching the surface, Matt. Oh, are we now? Yeah. So, regardless of the late season slump, Harry had the Aggies humming in Stadium in Maryland that day. Bob Smith housed the opening kickoff 100 yards. Later in the first half, Smith struck again with an 81-yard touchdown run. Tidwell also got in on the act. He scored twice in the first half. The route was on as Anum raced out to a 33-0 halftime lead. That's a uh, shellacking. Yeah. Uh, the Aggies pushed it to 40 nothing before Georgia could even mount a comeback. The Dogs scored 20 in the second half to make it look cosmetic with a 40-20 final. Left little doubt about who the better team was that day, and it was Harry's Aggies. 
All right. Things are looking good for Harry. Yeah, I mean, six to four, a huge win in this in the presidential yeah. presidential cup bowl. Which is it's strange to have a cup bowl, mm-hmm. <laughs> isn't it? Because it's either a cup or a bowl. You don't get like a cup. A cup and a bowl are two like very different <laughs> serving entities. So yeah. Like, why couldn't it just be like the presidential bowl? Why have to be the presidential cup bowl? Or even could be like the, the presidential medal bowl. Like the presidential of freedom, the presidential medal of college football. But not the presidential cup bowl. That does not make any sense. Hey, man, maybe the name is one of the reasons why it only lasted the one season. Maybe. People were confused. They didn't know if they were playing for a cup or for a bowl. They didn't know so, what the trophy was going to be, so they couldn't get geeked up about it. So on uh, December 15th, after the bowl victory... Harry would head to Houston for a banquet to celebrate the successful season with AM alumni at the Shamrock Hotel. Ooh, sounds like a good time. Yeah. Uh, reportedly. A little, a little champagne and campaign? Yeah. Uh, right. re- reportedly, a stranger attacked Harry, and the AM coach was beaten up. Just at, like. Yeah. In the, in the restaurant, in the hotel? Yeah, like on the street. So from the AP. Was he just like mugged? Well, from the AP, and uh, this was printed in the Corsicana Daily Sun, uh, quote, the coach's face was cut, bruised, and swollen. Uh, Harry said of the incident, again, this is from the Corsicana Daily Sun story, quote, someone, probably mistaking me for someone else, took a poke at me as I was getting out of a cab near the Shamrock, and there's nothing serious about it. No, anytime you say there's yeah. nothing serious about it, there's something serious about it. Like, yeah. that's, wow. Uh, the press also reported that no details were given to the police. Uh, from a United Press item, which appeared in The Times from Shreveport, Louisiana, quote, if Stettler uh, reported the attack to Houston police, there was no record of it. The police professed no knowledge of the attack, and there was no record of it on their complaint file. Wait, so you're saying this is just going to be like, like, oh, no one's going to notice that we're not doing anything about it. So we have, we have the head coach of a big school that just had their best season in a decade get the shit kicked out of them. That's not a good look either. He said he didn't recognize the attacker. He said it was a case of mistaken identity and didn't even bother to file a police report. Interesting. This didn't set well with anybody, and the press kept digging. As early as December 17th, this is a few days after the attack, uh, 1950, the Paris News of Paris, Texas, ran a story. (laughs) Sorry, sorry, I just just got... uh, an image of Pepe Le Pew sitting, uh, <laughs> sitting at a cafe talking about college football. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, the Paris News of Paris, Texas, read the story with the headline, quote, Aggie coach badly beaten in Houston incident won't talk. In it, they include an account by garage attendant Frank S. Uh, Jettel uh, Jr. that differed from Harry's. A few months later, the same paper ran a headline that read, quote, uh, Stettler's job not in danger after fight, says officials. A fight in the headline map was in quotations. Wait, wait, hold on a second. So, again, 
going back to the last premise, if you say it's not, you know, he, he said it was, it was nothing. So it was clearly something. And now they said his job is not in jeopardy. So his job is clearly in jeopardy. Um, in the story, Vice Chancellor D.W. Williams said Harry was, quote, not going to be fired by rumor, unquote. Williams continued to say, quote, I am not going to prejudge Harry. He has given us a statement, and that's the way it is until I don't know otherwise. <laughs> I'm um, a volunteer to stick my head in the sand. Um, so this kind of blew things open. Okay. Two days later, the school demanded more information. Headlines ran like, quote, facts demanded its steadler case from the Lubbock Morning Avalanche. Another well, headline. I mean, I mean, it's in Lubbock. They're trying to bury Texas and any chance they get. Another headline. It's basically yellow journalism at that point. Another headline. A&M officials demand Houston press give facts from the Odessa American. Another headline, quote, Aggie officials ask Houston paper supply steadler details. They hint, unquote, was that that was also from the Corsicana Daily Sun. And finally, from the Times of Shreveport, quote, Aggie officials demand paper print full story, unquote. Uh, Basically, these stories said that Houston reporter Jack Donahue had written articles alleging he knew who beat up Harry. Oh, that's scandalous. A&M said, show us your proof or shut the hell up. Okay. Rumors are flying all over the place at this point. A month later, on March 19th, the Austin America Statesman ran the story with the headline, quote, Stedler Spikes Attack Rumors. The paper reprinted a letter that Harry wrote to the Houston papers, which read, and I'm quoting it, Due to the many rumors and speculations that have been flying around, I would like to make a final statement to the effect that the Houston press was correct in its statement that I knew my assailant on the night of December 15th in Houston. However, due to the confusion of the moment, I could see no reason for naming names. And since making my original statement, I could see no reason changing it as the affair was a personal one and we too have quite some time since settled our difficult difficulty and forgotten it and sincerely hope that everyone will be understanding and forget the whole matter sincerely harry stettler nothing to see here folks yeah so harry So Harry knew who beat the crap out of him and didn't say anything. Uh, The story obviously didn't end there. The very next day, March 20th, 1951, Harry resigned as the coach of A&M. And he resigned for misrepresenting the facts, but gave no further details, maintaining the whole affair was a personal one. Um. And by this point, the story was followed everywhere. I found news clippings from Hawaii newspapers. Oh, my goodness. Um, This is scandalous. Yeah. His players stood up for him with the following statement that was signed by the team. We believe that whatever happened to Mr. Stettler was a personal matter, and it should have remained that. A lot of us boys came to A&M in 1948, not because A&M had won games, but simply because of Harry Stettler and his character. He has never ceased to set us that same example in the years we have played and worked for him. 
to this day, no one knows why he was beat up. And I've, I've found some rumors and speculations. One intriguing one that was on an Aggie fan board. Okay. Um, well, can, can I throw my, my complete rumor and speculation first before sure. I, having never heard this before, I'm assuming that he was two timing with some, with some two bit hussy. His <laughs> wife found out about it and hired some guys to, uh, to go get some <laughs> retribution. From Maybe. Him. I don't know. Um, one thing that I was found interesting, it was on an Aggie fan board. Uh, someone said that their father was in school at the time, and this uh, poster alleged that Harry was banging a player's wife. Ooh. Um, but there were quite a few holes in their story, so even if it wasn't as bad as that, uh, it, it's something Harry took to the grave with him. And so yeah. no one ever found out. No. Uh, replacing did, Harry... Did, what, did, so did he ever come... Did he ever coach again? We'll get to that. Okay. So replacing Harry was Raymond... Oh, I was going to say, it's because it's not Bear Bryant, right? Because Bryant doesn't come till 54. You're right. So replacing Harry was Raymond George. Uh, he lasted just three seasons, compiling a 12-14-4 record, but a dismal 3-12-3 tally in league play. In 1954, Annan began its long, long climb back into respectability again by hiring Bear Bryant. Gotcha. Uh, he would win a league title in 56. Uh, much like Harry, Bear's breakthrough success could not be sustained as Bear left for Alabama. And his next two replacements, Jim Myers and Hank Foldberg, combined to go 1847 and 5 from wow. 1958 to 1964. That's not looking great, folks. No. After those two burned out, Anam hired Gene Stallings. Uh, despite a wretched overall record, he did provide a league title and a cotton bowl win in 1967. In 1972, Emery Bellard was hired. Uh, he coached six full seasons into a seventh. I hear a train coming. Uh, he was the first coach since Bear Bryant to be above 500 in College Station. He also delivered a league crown in 1975. Uh, next up, we got Tom Wilson. He was another misfire, as his clubs from 78 to 81 always hung around 500. But 1982, things finally would be turned around for good. Jackie Sherrill got Adam Humming in the mid-80s when they won three straight league titles. Uh, his teams would have combined 29-7, and 20-3 in league during that run. Marcy Slocum kept it going with a Hall of Fame career. Saw him coach just one program, a and from 1989 to 2002. He stagged four league titles, three in the SWAC, one in the Big 12 during his wildly successful tenure. Uh, filling the shoes of the all-timer was Dennis Franciani, followed by Mike Sherman. Their combined nine seasons was met with mixed success. I was just say the word that makes uh, – the, the word that Dennis Franchione and Mike Sherman think of is meh. Yeah. Um, so they were met with mixed success, but the power dynamic of the Big 12 had shifted to such an extent that AM was third fiddle in the Big 12 South and losing cold hard cash to Texas in the dysfunctional league. Kevin Sumlin created a splash in the transition to the SEC, including coaching Heisman winner Johnny Manziel. But 23 of his 26 career losses with the Aggies were in league play as his team finished above 500 just once in the stacked conference. Uh, due up this season is Jimbo Fisher, his first year with AM and and if the last few years at Florida State is any indication of how things will go, I uh, expect AM to be on the hunt for another coach sometime in 2021. <laughs> As for Harry, All right. he, he pretty much disappeared. 
1953, it was reported that he was a stainless steel salesman in the Houston area. He died in 1994, and from the obituary, we know that he married uh, Retta Lee Elliott in 1933 and would have two kids. He ended his coaching career with the Bull Victory in an 8-21-2, and 3-13-2 record to go along with a pedigree of good tailbacks and maximizing talent. For example, that Yale Larry guy you like to make fun of? Oh, yeah. uh, he's an NFL Hall of Famer. Oh, good for him. Yeah, I mean, everyone knows Yale Larry. Um, but clearly... But Yale Larry's not to be confused with yeah. Zonka. <laughs> uh, but clearly the mystery surrounding his A&M exit stuck with Harry. And Matthew, this is another chapter in a very, very lengthy book that we like to call The Cover-Up is Always Worse. Oh, yeah. Like we don't even know what what could have been that bad. I don't know. It's a mystery. Like he got he got jumped by some dudes he knew. Like yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It's sketchy that like the coach got jumped, but if it's a case of mistaken identity, is it like some like weird pride kind of thing? Players certainly loved him. Yeah, I don't know. Um, if we have any A and M listeners who know anything about it, we'd love to know more. That's fascinating. That's that, that that's uh, sort of a it's a it's a cold case. Josh in the end yeah. of college football history. Yeah. Um, I have to say that was one of the weirdest reasons a coach ever stopped coaching. Yeah, I also like how you tied in the presidential cup bowl, which is I mean I mean I mean you already know how much I love uh, obscure college football bowls. That was the last game he ever coached. And yet it was the only game that the only uh, presidential cup bowl. Yeah. I'm betting because they called itself the Cup Bowl. Six days later, he got beat up. And, like, three months after his attack, he his lies got totally unraveled and he quit. And never coached again. Well, that's a, that, that's an interesting, like, sliding door situation. Because if that doesn't happen, like, and he's this great recruiter, and he's just come off a really, a really hot season, you know, Bear Bryant never goes there because he's probably creating yeah. sort of, you know, power. Yeah, his uh, after the bowl game, there was like um, publications predicting next season they already had A and M winning the league. Hmm. So yeah, and he never, uh, never even went back to high school football coaching. That is just quite done. Yeah, total mystery. Just done coaching, and outside of the stainless steel salesman thing in the mid fifties, there was like next to nothing else about him. That is that that is fascinating, Josh. Yeah. Even I, his even his obituary mentions uh, he resigned as coach of Texas A&M in nineteen fifty. That's the last thing he mentions about him. Huh. I mean, talk about live. I mean, so then so then he lasted forty four more years. And totally off the radar. Off other, the than, other than he had two kids, and at one point was in the Houston area. Do you think he changed his name? I have no idea. Like, what could have been so bad that, like, uh, I, huh? And I and yeah. we will never know. I mean, nineteen uh, fifties were known for point shaving scandals in college basketball. Maybe he got wrapped up in gambling. Who knows? Like, there's an endless list of things about him that could have huh. done this, but maybe. Yeah. 
was was it politically motivated? I mean, the game was played up uh, right next to DC. Maybe he was some he, he was some crazy liberal down in Texas. They didn't like his thoughts. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know about that either. I just know that the uh, stomp in Georgia on December 9th was last time he was on the sideline. What was the line in the game? What was the gambling line in the game? Uh, I can't find that. <laughs> no? I'm sure no, I'm sure no one cared. It was like it's, December 9th. There's no uh, historicalbookie.com. <laughs> Yeah, was, that's a good one, Josh. I I I enjoyed that very much. Yes, Stiddler. Yeah, uh, if you want to Google that name, he spells his last name S T I T E L E R. All right. And um, yeah, it was so fascinating. I even signed up for a newspapers.com account to that find is. to find some of these stories. Then that that is dedication, um, sir. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's a mystery. All it's right. Mystery. Well, uh, he lived through, uh, to a ripe old age. Yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully he found some joy after his A and M run. I mean, just, just bizarre. Huh. That's very strange. Huh. Just stop coaching. Wow. So he had fifteen college or fifteen high school seasons and. Uh, had two at Rice as an assistant, and one at AM as an assistant, and then three at AM as head coach when he was done. I mean, I can't imagine what these days. Like, could you imagine someone like Hugh Freeze or Art Briles just going completely off of the grid? Uh, no, I mean, both of them have. And they've done. Like they wanted- I can't imagine anything that would have been worse than what, what they did. Uh, I mean, I will say this: maybe Harry had some dignity about himself. Maybe, but when when does dignity and pride, be, you know, get in the way of like I don't know larger success? And then what's weird is like how how has it never come out? Like how is there not more to the story? How did the attacker stay silent for all those years? How did yeah? How is there nothing? That, I mean, that is as strange as I can possibly imagine. Huh. Huh. Maybe someone should, uh, I don't know. I would, I would see, uh, like, the, the researcher in me hopes that he, like, kept diaries or um, some sort of journal or something like that. I would love to read. You know, yeah. Just to know I want to know more about him. I want to go, to, like, dig through uh, some Texas history. That'd be fun. That would be fun. All right, man. Well, uh, this is fantastic. I appreciate it. Um, and we should be having another one of these. Hopefully yeah. coming up very soon. Yeah. I did I did like how midway through it, you were so excited about the riffing on the bowl and thought it was just going to be a run-on-the-mill story about a mediocre to average coach. Yeah. Well, I mean, I uh, <laughs> like I said, you know me and my feelings towards defunct college balls. <laughs> yeah. So... All right, man. Well, uh, so thank you again for joining us here on our trip down memory lane. Uh, on behalf of our storyteller for the evening, uh, Joshua Cook up there in the Second City, this is Matt Perkins in Nashville saying so long and see you next time on the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. 
To get in touch with the show, email us at illegalmotionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at illegal underscore motion. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.